Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you want to go to rugby heaven? Let's go back to 1987 with Squidge. With Squidge. Let's go back to 87 with Squish. And welcome back at long last to the Squidge Rugby World Cup retrospective, the rugby podcast that is all about 1987, the current year, what it is right now. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed uh, 1986 as it was last year. Yeah. But we, on the other hand, have gone back. To Rugby Heaven and 1987. Yeah, yeah. Or we've gone forward, I suppose, from 1986. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. Because it's retrospective. Have we come from 1988? Oh, that's true, actually. Yeah, so we we need to go backwards, don't we? Yeah. Like, we've just... Like, last year we saw Back to the Future and now we haven't Mm. seen it because it hasn't come out yet. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I'm... I was very excited to listen to the Joshua Tree, but then yeah. I realised it was already out, and now it's not. It's really disappointing, that isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I was really excited about this being the year that Donnie Darko, which won't come out for another thirteen years, is set. Sure, but alas, it is no longer that year. Yeah, now it's a year that Donnie Darko did not have a plane crash into his house in. It's, it's gutting, isn't it? But it's really disappointing. Th- th- I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the case. I'm just gonna gonna just double check. Mm. Yes, 1987 was the year Ken Owens was born. So, oh, now we're talking. That's that's so, a very good statistic. Ken Owens is what about six months old in the Rugby World Cup? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His birthday is the third of January, which is also my birthday. Mm. It, and Nicky his... Robinson's birthday. Yes, and Florence Pugh's birthday, and Gerard Tolkien's birthday. Oh, yeah. what a bunch. What a, I think, I think Mel Gibson's birthday as well. Okay, don't invite Mel Gibson. I, th- I think... Cancel culture for you. Yeah, yeah, Mel sure. Mel Gibson not invited to a birthday party with you, Florence Pugh and Ken Owens. Yeah, yeah, And um, whoever else, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think we'll have a well... If, if you put J.R.R. Tolkien and Ken Owens in a room, what would they talk about? Uh, genuinely nothing. <laughs> because it'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, here's all no, this cool fantasy you... shit I'm on about. And then Ken would just be like, yeah, I want to talk about tractors, I'll, you idiot. I'll tell you what they talk about, the Welsh language. That's true, actually. Because... Tolkien was an obsessive linguist. Yeah. And Ken is an obsessive Welshman. So, so they would just talk about the Welsh language for yeah. ages. So I've seen uh, this advert on Channel 4, and it's the most mm. Channel 4 thing you'll ever see. This programme, which is a dating show for people who don't speak the same language, but they don't know that <laughs> until I've applied for it, until they're on the show. Uh, nice. And then they tell them that none of you speak the same language. It's uh, and it's hosted by Davina McCall, which is the most Channel language. 4 thing you could possibly imagine. I reckon yep. that's what it would be like, that Ken would just immediately start firing off in Welsh to Tolkien, who would eventually just kind of go like, you know what? I'm going to learn my way around this and try and understand this fella because I reckon he's like maybe maybe I don't know what language he's speaking but I reckon that country he's their all-time most capped hooker. I I think Tolkien spoke Welsh. You reckon? I think he did because he spoke like 14 languages or something sure and made up his own. Okay, he yeah. Nerd. Yeah. Um, I He's when I was in my first year of uni. Yeah. Uh we had one lecture where the lecturer ran through everything in like half an hour. And then went, so uh, this is a lot to be four hours. So either you can go home now or 
I can do the rest of the lecture on J.R.R. Tolkien. And because I was on a course with a bunch of nerds, they all voted to listen to Tolkien. Really? And, yep. And, wow. and I think, so I sat and I listened for three hours to a man talk about Tolkien. Wow. And that is the only lecture where I fell asleep. That's impressive. I genuinely just fell asleep in my chair. And How many, how many people were in the room? Up. Was it a big lecture theatre or was it like a smaller seminar? It w- my course only had about 30 people on it. Okay. So it was probably like yeah. high 20s, like okay. 26, 27. You only fell asleep once in a lecture. As far as I recall, I don't know. I, I suppose you don't really remember sleep. No, I, I did actually. I, f- I, f- I fell asleep twice. I, fell asleep. I okay, also yeah. fell asleep. I did a module I've... of film studies and I Ooh. fell asleep watching Lawrence of Arabia. Okay, fair uh, enough. Which is four I think, hours long, I, think I fell asleep three or four times in uni. One of them I was sat, it was in a, mm. it was in a room with about six people in it. I was sat directly opposite the lecturer and one other person noticed that I fell asleep. Uh, it was for about three seconds i fell asleep right uh, and immediately woke back up but yeah that was that yeah. was, oh, no, that was no. a scare. I, I was asleep for about 15 minutes oh okay yeah yeah like, i've, I've never like, fallen asleep for that that long phasing out like i yeah. fell asleep. i didn't you know have one of those moments where you kind of like nod off and wake yeah back yeah up. oh okay like, i've never you know what like so accumulatively minutes. you've probably slept for longer in your lectures than i have yeah even though i will have fallen asleep a lot more times no i did i did that where i kind of phased out quite a lot yeah because... yeah I, I don't really sleep generally, ever. Sure. I never really have. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, over in a lecture, I once fell asleep properly. Yeah, which is maybe yeah. maybe the only time I've ever fallen asleep with all the lights on around people. Yeah. You know, in a room of 30 people. Yeah. It's interesting that, isn't it? How how easy it is to fall asleep in lectures. I don't know if just the background the noise really helps. The bloody ones about Tolkien it is. Yeah, that's true. We always had it with... Because to my shame, I had to do... Because I did an English language degree, but... Mm. The university I went to, which was Derby, the same uni you went to, at the time didn't run an English language degree on its own. And I just kind of did that because that was the one thing I was fine at at A-level. Just kind of like blitzed through that. But they didn't run that on its own. So I had to do an English literature degree as a kind of like semi-joint honours thing. And the amount of times in literature the uh, lecturers had to remind people that they're not allowed to do Harry Potter was insane oh uh, yeah i mean there were northampton saints I, fans that uh, not not tigers <laughs> fans we'll move on in a moment but i i'll tell one final that there was one because again michael said a lot of people loved harry potter and blah, blah 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 yeah there was one lecturer who i had who was the most <laughs> who was a death eater man. yeah <laughs> yeah he was the most softly spoken man i've ever met in my life okay he was like if poetry about rain was a person it would be him he just wore cardigans. His name was Adrian. He was wonderful and lovely. But again, spoke like this and did poetry lectures and talked about how lovely pollen is in May. And that was Adrian. And then one person who was really into, I think it was Dostoevsky or, you know, one of the kind of... One of the big nerds. Yeah. Kafka. Actually, I think it might have been Kafka. It might have been big fucking nerds. That's who they are. And he said, you should, you know, you should really go and do something uh, in the style of... This nerd. Dostoevsky, you know, it was that kind of thing. He, he was really encouraging him. He said, because uh, I'm really... No, I want you to do something so we can show it to all these Harry Potter-loving cunts. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And he just he just dropped that on someone. Yeah, I love that. Um, that's a really good, really, powerful really use of swearing. People who got into everything through harry potter yeah that's brilliant well i mean that's actually a really good segue because uh you mentioned Mm. that the the pollen is nice in may 
And that's yes. when this game took place in May 1987, the 24th to the be precise. Yeah, the current year. This happened in the future, so, maybe. Yes, we are. Because Ken here Owens was born today. nine days ago. As we to this. now talk about Japan against the United States, both countries' first ever Rugby World Cup match. Hell yeah. Two teams who, <laughs> if you listen to certain sections of World Rugby, are going to win the World Cup in future. This is where it all began for them. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty impressive watching this game back and kind of thinking like... Um, the, so the commentators and the pundits beforehand summed up America as being overwhelming favourites. See, but, no, but, they didn't. No, 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 no. They said that America are the much bigger rugby nation mm. and Japan are sort of the underdogs. But then they, they said, but every time they played before, they'd played twice before this. Mm. One of them was 9 all. One of them was 15-16 to the USA. So they, they recognised that there was some potential for Japan. But the issue with these pundits was they clearly hadn't seen these teams play before. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of this. That, whereas nowadays you get a lot of punditry on World Cup matches where they clearly haven't watched Uruguay or Russia yeah, yeah, before. Yeah. And they don't Even though they have the resources to do and... so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they try and, like, bluff it. And yeah. And trying, like, Clive Woodward claiming that Canada have a big ice hockey background and a lot of their players, <laughs> yeah. when literally one of their players has an ice hockey background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that just racial stereotyping. I I really appreciate uh, this, the, 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 being... the The Canadian front row is quite good and big and strong because they have lots of maple syrup over there. Yeah, they're just constantly downing it. Whereas I quite appreciate the fact that these pundits were very upfront about the fact they don't know who any players <laughs> yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do massively respect <laughs> that. All three, the presenter and both pundits, mm. and we'll get onto the pundits in a moment, yeah. all refer to both teams as an unknown quantity because yes. <laughs> they don't know anything about. It's these really players. good that that cliche exists, isn't it? Yeah. There's a phrase "unknown quantity" because it makes you sound smart while saying I don't have a fucking clue what I'm on about, which is very, very good and. I mean, the king of that is Murray Mextad, who was on the, yes. the punditry so, uh, on this. And it was great because he was simultaneously going, oh, yeah, I don't really know these players. And he was just kind of spouting catchphrases to kind of go like, oh, well, America, they, well, they probably play fine. You know, Japan, if their support play is good, they'll be grand because they play nice patterns. So there were two pundits here, right? Yeah. One of them is Murray Mextad looking the most 1987 any man has ever looked. <laughs> yes. He had an enormous moustache. And a mullet, like a, a a mullet that looks fictional. It looks drawn on, yeah. like with crayon. After, someone's literally come up to my screen and scribbled it on his head. Yeah. And then the other pundit, who seems to be a comedy character played by Taika Waititi. Yes! I his name. But he looks like Taika Waititi. You are spot on voice, with the comedy moustache. Like, yeah, he, he's got a comedy moustache, like in bloody Jojo Rabbit. And he, he's doing the Korg voice. He's doing the Korg voice from Four Ragnarok. And so it's always just like, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, I think that Japan will um, look to improve at the set piece. It's I couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah. This is, we're watching Korg as a pundit. My favourite quote from Murray Mextad in this game, mm. uh, before, before the game starts, he says, I think the Americans will play with American enthusiasm. I also wrote that down. I think that is on a par with uh, Eddie Jones's they're going to come out like 15 Donald Trumps. But it's even less because he's saying literally nothing. Yeah, I know. It's great because like I accept that Murray Mextead and his par of punditry is fine at this stage when watching 1987. I'm actually on board yeah. with it at this stage. 
Whereas a lot of people criticise it because, like, let's be honest, the, the more recent stuff is, like, it's laughable because you expect yeah, something yeah. serious nowadays. But honestly, I'm so down for it when watching this game back. Absolutely, absolutely. And as I say, like, they are limited to basically having watched when these teams have toured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The results are very... The reference points they've little. had. Yeah. So I don't and blame them in. for not knowing what they're on about, like... No, exactly. So it's quite a difficult thing. Yeah. And they do mention as well, the last time Japan played New Zealand, because their team was so physically small, they'd only been offered games against students and age and like the New Zealanders' twenties size. They hadn't been offered a game against the All Blacks, even though it was a touring national team. That's crazy. That's crazy. I mean should we in fact should we talk about Japan and their team and everything? Yeah, let's let's run through the because team. Because with Japan, I can kind of look at their style of play at this point and go, I can see how that develops into what they are in 2011. Yes. Not anything beyond that because that's a complete overhaul from Eddie Jones and Jamie <laughs> Joseph, but, but I, I can see how that DNA. translates. There is still DNA that leads to this. 100%. Um so, and I mean, I guess we'll get into this in more detail. Yeah. But I've really enjoyed watching Japan because their entire they they are the team that I think so far out of this World Cup has had the clearest game plan. Like they have philosophy on how they want. Yeah, to play yeah, the game. yeah, yeah. And whereas the others have sort of just played on vibes, other than Italy, who just booted literally everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Japan, their game plan is offload until we knock it off. Yeah, exactly. And usually that's about two offloads. But you occasionally yeah. get those passages of play where they string together like eight and you go oh my god they're incredible but usually like 90% of the time they just throw one and they drop the ball (laughs) but sometimes you say it really comes off yeah and And it looks beautiful when it does it does it looks stunning quite regularly and they rarely make more than 10 meters from (laughs) they they are on about one meter per offload but they're very entertaining aren't they so looking at the team they have the captain Toshiyuki Hayashi uh, playing in the, yes. the second row, who was quite fun. He clearly fancied himself quite a lot, and I clearly was knocking on the coach's door quite a lot, asking for the captaincy. But I liked him. Can we take a moment to talk about uh, Hayashi? Yeah, go on. Before we move on, so Hayashi, obviously the captain. Yes, and he runs out. And he he wears this bright scrum cap, like very eye catching. scrum Yeah, cap. yeah. But he also has in his mouth. He has something in his mouth for all time. Is it a mouth, a mouth guard? guard. <laughs> no. And I was just looking at it. I was trying to work out what it was the whole time because it looks like he's got like a dummy in his mouth because there's a string coming out. Okay. And what he seems to be doing is, you know, the little strap from the bottom of his mouth guard. Like he's got one. He has to physically like tie and tie a knot in rather than having like the Velcro strap along. Uh, no, yeah, I was going to say no, mouth guard. Sorry, not mouth guard. I tend not to tie a knot in my mouth the guard. Cap. Yeah, so he's, he's got like a thing he's had to tie a knot round on his Sure, yeah, yeah. Of. Okay. And what he's doing the whole game, the whole game, every time we see him, he's doing this. He's brought the end of it up instead of leaving it dangling below his neck or under his chin. He's bringing it up and he's putting it in his mouth. He's chewing it. So he's playing, yeah, chewing on his, the knot from his... Like, That's so weird, but I love it. His I love it. And like, there's a point where he's talking to the referee and he's still got it in his mouth. That's incredible. I think, we genuinely, we're about, what, five games into this 1987 tournament? We can yep. nearly put together a full, like, 15 of players who've had kit malfunctions. Yeah. Like, there was the Romanian lad who carries tape in his pocket at all times, even during the yes. match. Like, there's, there's there's plenty of people who've had tape malfunctions left, right and centre, but th- that's incredible. I did not notice that once, but I really hope he continues to do it throughout the tournament because I love it, that. It was really bothering me just seeing something in his mouth, so I had to pause it and go, like, sure. what is that? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's what it was, unless he brought, like, as I said, like a dummy. That's phenomenal. Like a pacifier, as the That's Americans so good, that's it. so good. So yeah. they have a hooker called Suyoshi Fujita, mm. who was misspelled on the team sheet as Fuoita. 
<laughs> so I wrote that down on my team sheet and then realised the commentators were all calling him Fujita and thought that makes a lot more sense. But he yeah. was pr- constantly praised by the commentators. Like, this is a world-class player. Like, he's Japan's, like, most yeah. talented lad. And to be fair, he did kind of seem the spit of Shotohorie. He is good. Yeah. Like, it's it's notable. He is, I think, if we're picking a team of the tournament so far... <laughs> yeah, based on the first round. Brian Moore yeah. for... The hooker who looks the most like an actual rugby player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not like he was nails or anything. He was just like, he knew how to ball. Uh, He could catch, pass, offload. There's a moment in the first half, towards the end of the first half, where he, and his line-up throwing technique, I really enjoyed. Mm. Which was basically, he would absolutely pelt it at whatever the target was. (laughs) Yeah. Like, as hard as he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And clearly, the call is to throw to the front. So, seeing as that guy is stood like two He throws it like a shot put, doesn't he? He, yeah, he does. He does. He has it in one hand. He just lobs yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I can't see the gesture I'm doing. But it is. It's like a shot put style. Like low and hard. Straight. Yeah, like um, NFL, but low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, he's not floating it in the air or anything. No. So he pelts it straight at the guy right in front of him, who has a hand up, but obviously doesn't have the reaction times to catch it. So it bounces off his teammate at the front of the line out onto the floor, at which point he puts the most beautiful touch. Like, a really great, like football soccer first touch through to dribble it past his yes. number. He then dribbles it round the scrum off he's covering And back. the winger. And yeah. And like it's really good like It's beautiful skill. Yeah, really good footwork. Like he he knows what he's doing in terms of and it's in- like, yeah, that's it. It's intelligent work. like stabbing yeah. it in it's like into a position where the scrum off and the winger won't expect him to. And he very nearly scores from that, doesn't he? Yeah, you know. It's just the the scrum off gets there ever so slightly before Mike Saunders, the USA scrum off. Yeah. Uh, narrowly beats him to the ball, but it's properly both of them are yeah, dying yeah, yeah. at the same time. Like if he was any quicker, if that was a back he'd have scored. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Look at the J- Japanese back line quickly. So yes. Seiji Hirao playing at ten, uh, who was quite fun. So Seiji Hirao um, had spent played at the time. He'd just come back to Japan to prepare for the World Cup, mm-hmm. but he played for a few seasons for Richmond in England. Oh yeah, they did say that, didn't they? So yeah, which I think is quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to see how he played in the English leagues actually, because like he basically just didn't kick the ball or anything. He would he would mainly just try and step around everybody. He was basically a winger trapped in a tense body, wasn't he? Yeah. I really enjoyed Seiji Hirao. But th- their their wingers I think are quite notable because mm. they've got on one wing they've got Nofamuli Tawamoli Falao, who was quite clearly quite this good sort of technical winger, uh would try and duck around people, you know, and would just run straight. And then on the other wing, they had Shinji Anuki who was just a party man like he was great he was just every time he got the ball he would mainly run sideways but it would with the most beautiful footwork you'll ever see Mm. and it was properly like Shane Williams-esque feats that he was showing and I really enjoyed the battle him and his opposite winger at Purcell had together because they were constantly going at each other and I loved it he also had a really great nose for when to stab a grubber in behind Mm, yeah like every time he did it, it seemed like the perfect option. Like yeah, yeah. Space, or there's once right towards the end of the game, sure, where he stabs it through straight, so low and hard at Purcell, who knocks it on. Yeah, dives on it and rolls into touch. Yes, I noticed that exact one you're on about, where he knocks it on and rolls into touch, and then Anuki just sits on him, <laughs> which I think is really funny. What a guy. Uh, should we look at the USA team quickly? Yeah, I want to mention as well, uh, Harrah had come in. He was Richmond's big signing the previous season All after right. they got relegated. Oh, to okay. The, was the equivalent of the championship. Sure. They, so they were they were quite a big team at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, had been, they were kind of the up and down side. They were promoted the following season when he left. 
So yeah, they were again. Richmond were like it's not like now where they're kind of like bottom end of the championship. Yeah, yeah. They were a big team at the right, time. Right. Okay. And so he was. He's the equivalent of a player playing in the Premiership. Sure. Okay. So he's as. So he's as the, high... their big player. Yeah. Yeah. At this stage. Okay. So yeah, the USA team. Let's look at them. So yes. they have a front row of the most American, some of the most American names you could ever imagine. Oh. Rick man. Bailey at loosehead prop, John yeah. Everett at hooker, and Fred Powley at tight head. Uh, which is quite... Also, in the second row, they have Kevin Swords and Ed Burlingham. I was going to say, it keeps going for the entire back. Kevin Swords, Ed Burlingham, Dr. Gary Lambert, (laughs) who's a a chiropractor, Blaine Warhurst... He's not real. And then Brian Vizard, like Lizard with a V. It is a pack full of great names. I hadn't heard of any of these players, uh, well, any of the players on the pitch, I I will add, before Mm. watching this game. But it was particularly notable looking on the team sheet and seeing Jay Clarkson playing at 10. Yes, yeah, I heard that. It is, of course, Joe Clarkson, the father of... Yeah, Jeremy's uh, dad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, then they had Kevin Higgins playing outside centre, was quite fun. And Ray Nelson at fullback, uh, who I quite liked. I'm going to talk so much about Kevin Higgins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, Ray Nelson, who, first time we see him is from a certain angle, and he's got kind of quite long hair, and he's got, like, a certain, like, posture about him. Sure. And I did think he looks a little bit like Friend of the Pod and Incredible Illustrator Matt McKnight. Yes, yes. Uh, and then you see him and, up close, and he doesn't so much. But but well, you know, there's a there's a slight resemblance. He's 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 from the US of A, isn't he? So there could yeah. be could be some relation. It's not like the USA is a massive place there's, or anything. There's, yeah, there's there's only one family in the USA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hello, Matt, if you're listening. Look, look, we're from our family. All date back through the same one village in Wales, yeah. <laughs> going back generations. I know we're inbred, so I assume that literally everyone else is. We literally had a conversation about this yesterday, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> about whether or not we're related to somebody that we, is, we were raised to but, call our auntie. Yeah. But chances are we probably are because we're from Wales. Yeah, look, if we're not related to Auntie Doris, we're definitely related to Auntie Doris. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, should we come on to the game? Uh, or just before yes. the game, Japan stood normally for the national anthem. The line, it's the first time in the history of the Rugby World Cup where the teams line up for the anthem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the USA obviously squander it by going into a huddle yeah. to really awkwardly sing it. Yeah. To which the commentators say, well, they won't be challenging the Welsh for their singing anymore. Yeah, and yeah. And going, like, but Wales haven't played yet. What are they, why are they? And everyone's like, oh, no, it's just, it's just stereotype. Yeah, yeah, of course, That's where we're at. Of course. I enjoy it. So the very first kickoff of the game, the referee rules it not 10, even though it literally yeah. does go 10 before the ball <laughs> is played. <laughs> but It only just goes 10. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... The first, no, so the first scrum comes, right? And before the game, there was a lot of talk about how the USA team is so much physically bigger than the Japanese team. Mm. They don't bring up pack weights or anything at this point. Yeah. You know, there's no way of necessarily knowing that. But the USA have a far physically bigger team. Uh, and directly before the scrum, the commentator says something like, you know, well, obviously we, we know how this is going to go. It'll be fascinating to see the scrum because the USA is so much bigger and they should just blow them off the ball. Uh, and Ed Burlingham, the USA captain, the second row, had also said like their their game plan was very much to just blow Japan off the ball, was just to be incredibly physical yeah. and dominate be stronger because than them. they had yeah. a physically bigger team. Yeah. And so the first scrum happens, and Japan drive them backwards like seven or eight meters. And that's because they invent getting lower than the opposition. Yeah. And the commentators are blown away by this as well. It's proper like. 
power of technique and body position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they drive them backwards off the ball. And the USA do get wise to it a few times and just use their big lads and make sure you don't shift them. Yeah. But it's a really incredible thing to watch Japan kind of shoving as an eight rather than as sure. eight individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting because they, they have a few moments. There is actually a really nice kind of um, contrast between these two teams' approaches to, te- uh, to the set piece, isn't there? Because like, mm. there's a point where Japan do a dummy jumper in a non-lifting yes. line-out. In, like, the, I think it's the first line-out of the game. And it's just like, what's the point of doing a dummy jumper? We can literally see the ball coming in. But I guess it makes sense when they've got Fujita lobbing it in like a grenade. Yeah. There is also, it's notable how much shorter the Japanese locks are than their yeah. equivalents. Yes. So Hirashi was their tallest player and he was six foot tall. Right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. There's, so, did you notice so, something very notable about the USA lineup throughout the game? You could always hear the hooker Everett shouting the lineup calls on the ref mic mm. throughout the game. Did you clock their lineup calls? No. I cracked their lineup calls on the second really? lineup. Yes. <laughs> Go on. So, for example, the one where I noted it was he shouted, Blue, three, one, one. Okay. The first number he shouts is where he's throwing it to. <laughs> so if he shouts, Blue, three, one, one, he's throwing it to three. Okay. As in the third um, person back. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And throughout the game, that was it. He would just shout a bunch of words, including some numbers. The first number he said was where he was throwing <laughs> the ball. And he would just shout in front of the opposition. I have, what, retrospectively, 40 years on, crack this line-out call. <laughs> or Victor Matfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's t- uh, you know, look, I've taken my time over it, but literally on the second line-out, I realised this is what's happening. And I kept wanting to validate it by listening to him and thinking, I really hope I've got it wrong, because it's quite easy to crack. But no, every time. Uh, and I, I kept listening okay. to it and thinking, have I got this right? Yeah, it's gone now, exactly where I expected. This might work against Japan, a country of a completely different language that shares nothing... With English. That's true, actually, yeah. But their next two games are against Australia and England. Yeah, I think England <laughs> might uh, might get that. Australia, I mean, they had a good line out from what I can recall in the game we, uh, yeah. we, game we watched. So I feel like <laughs> that's going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, like, Japan, their pack was so short they struggled at the line out anyway. Yeah. And it's always a lottery in this era before lifting. But particularly so when your tallest player is six foot one. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember thinking about it. When I played junior rugby, mm. when I was like under 14s, our line-out calls were just the letters from F-R-O-N-T, front, M-I-D-L-E, middle, and B-A-C-K, back. Right. And that was literally it. Just any of those, any words starting with those letters is where we were going. And thinking about it, like, it never got cracked, even though it was just the simplest line-out call you could do other than... Mm. Blue three one one, and that's where we're throwing it, <laughs> or just telling the opposition, yeah, we're going to go to that guy, yeah, but yeah, no, it's just while we're thinking about complicated lineout calls, I just thought I'd share that incredibly enthralling story. No, thank you, I was incredibly enthralled. So Japan break away off that first scrum, yeah, and charge down the pitch, yeah. And they go for a drop goal right away. Yeah, that's fun, isn't it? I love them setting up for the drop goal, and it's charged down only because there was an offside, and the USA penalised for it. Uh, They were very committed to going for that drop goal as well. So Mm. I like the point where there's one of the players had open field in front of them and gives a hospital pass because they really want to commit to setting this drop goal on second phase. Look, that's what I want out of a rugby team. Absolutely. Uh, that's like, I've talked about this before, but rugby union manager free having a setting where your team will automatically go for drop goals yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. within range. 
I want that turned on for teams yeah. at the World Cup, yeah. other than Namibia in 2011. Especially if you can, yes. Especially if you can define range. Yes, exactly. And so Japan, look, they decide to take the penalty. They decide to take the three points from the penalty. Yeah. They line it up and they nail a kick from straight between the posts, which we learn is not something you should take for granted yes. with this team. <laughs> Absolutely. So Japan take a, nil, a 3 0 uh, lead, don't they? Yeah. Kojihiro Yashinada is the goal kicker, the 12. Yeah. He's the guy kicking for them. But he also is a, for, I don't know. It's a, it's yeah, base 13. Base 13. He was, yeah. So he was at 13. But I think, does he go off? Because the second half it was saying... No, he just he just missed six kicks in a row. So they changed okay. the kicker. That's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't even the most kicks someone's and missed hey, in a game in we'll, this World we'll, Cup we'll so get, far. We'll, we'll get on to that, but you yes. know. It doesn't go well for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other end of the spectrum, when the USA first get a shot at goal, (laughs) right in the corner on the 22, Ray Nelson steps up and he absolutely bloody nails it. Like, the the touch judge comes on to bring it, to offer him sand, Mm. which is mental thing in itself. (laughs) That is the touch judge in his full kit saying, oh, do you you want this sand? We've got some on the sideline. And says, no, 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 just going to put it on the floor. And he absolutely nails it from the touchline. It's a, it's a great kick. Can uh, which you imagine bo- that nowadays? Can you imagine Matt Carley coming on for Bucket? Yeah, right. <laughs> but no, Nelson kicks brilliantly. Like, fr- from the yeah. touchline, nails it over, and it's three three all. The commentator also says, Ray Nelson, he's a he's a veteran with five tests to his name. Yes. Do you want some hot, hot Ray Nelson facts? Yeah, go on. So, Ray Nelson was born in Glasgow. Yes, I did clock it? this. So, I also looked him up and, and yeah. I thought, okay... He couldn't get into the team for Gavin Hastings, could he? No, exactly. So he was just outright Scottish. But he was good, There man. is no word on what is linked to the US. <laughs> no, no, I've tried to look this up. <laughs> there is this no. Too. He is just a Scottish man who decided he was American because and nobody he's questioned Ray. it. Nobody asked. So how are you American? He went on to score 28 points for the US, which stood as a record until 2003. <laughs> Did Mike Kirkus take that from him? By Mike Kirkus took that from yes, him. Yes, what a guy. Do you want to know another hot Ray Nelson fact? Mm. This game, mm-hmm. uh, this particular game we're on about today, USA against Japan, Ray Nelson played that well that he got a positive Ruddy Data video made from about it. No way! Yeah. And no that's the, way. That's it's the first time we've had to address Tyler one of those. against Munster. Yeah, yeah, those yeah. Those the only two positive Ruddy Data videos. Yes, yeah. but you know what else that means? That means Ruddy Data's done the exact same thing as us. And has gone and through the whole game. 1987 World Cup. So no, he can watched, find this. He's probably just watched the USA, hasn't he? Because he, he was like, huh, Rick Bailey. He sounds like he might do six knock-ons. <laughs> That's true. He sounds shit. They had a player called Joe Clarkson. I could make a joke about him being like Jeremy Clarkson. But yeah, he, uh, Ray Nelson gets a positive Ruddy, Ruddy Data review after this game, which That's is more than Ren Nogar ever did. <laughs> yes. By a long, long way. Yeah, I mean, I think... So, Ray Nelson, can we talk about him for a moment? Yeah. Because I think... Ray Nelson obviously gets a positive Ruddy Data video out of this, but I think he could also find a negative Ruddy Data video out of this. <laughs> <laughs> because Ray Nelson is... I remember... I don't know if anyone remembers Endgames or Hypersport, uh, who was a Kiwi rugby YouTuber. I do remember uh, sort him. Of around yeah. 27, he was great. I really liked him. He was great. He was great. I spoke to him once over Skype. Yeah, um, yeah. And he was, he he's like the sort of guy, guy, if he was still going, we'd have we'd have him on as a guest on this podcast. Absolutely. Then he disappeared off the face of the earth, and I wonder where he is. And if he is not if he is listening, please get in touch. Or if anyone knows, knows where he is, we would he definitely just... have him on this podcast. <laughs> 
He used to have a thing that he described Liam Williams as being, every time he got the ball, either the best player in the world or the worst player in the world, right? And I think that actually is closer to Ray Nelson. Sure, he has so his moments. Ray, Ray Nelson is, you know the, the, the kind of the thing about Star Trek movies? Like the cliche is about that, <laughs> The cliche about Star Trek movies is the um, even-numbered ones are shit and the odd-numbered ones are good. Okay, okay. Right, so like... Like, Star Trek 1 is good, Star Trek 3 is good, but Star Trek 2 and 4 is shit. Okay, That yeah. kind of thing. That's kind of the general pattern. That yeah. is always the thing. I think Ray Nelson's like that. That every other touch, he's incredible. And then the touch in between, he'll knock it on, or he does, like... He shanks, like, six kicks. Yeah, he does, he does. Occasionally, he'll do a beautiful spiral that's, like, a 50-22. Yeah. And then there's one where he catches the ball, realises that there's a winger in front of him, shits himself, and just grubbers it into touch backwards. That's my favourite one. That's, that's my favourite favorite one. That's my favourite bit of a game. He... Because he, he like, regathers the ball perfectly in like modern fashion, like keeps yeah, the ball in, yeah. covers it really well, <laughs> and then looks up and sees there's someone chasing, so he grubs the ball in, like, into touch like a metre in front of like, him. He could have just ran into touch, yeah. but he just decided he literally he could not be bothered to run with the ball, so he just grubs it out. He would have made more ground if he ran into touch. Yeah, yeah. But instead, he grubs it to the spot right in front of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he, he could have tried to go on the outside of this guy and get driven out that's not great yeah. but it's acceptable because like he tries in football when you know a team is defending and they'll deliberately put the ball into touch yeah yeah them. if in doubt kick it possession. out yeah and i think there is something that i i thought during this game that there is something closer to football in that it was harder to control possession at this era Sure, yeah. Like, it is far harder to keep hold of the ball for long passages. Yeah, you know, definitely. couldn't have done a, a 40-phase move. Definitely. Obviously, the difficult to do nowadays, but they're possible. Yeah. Whereas that was not possible, especially because the referee blows up at any ruck. Yes. And just awards a scrum. Just explodes, yeah. No, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Like, there's, At some point, somebody's going to throw a bad pass or... Yeah. Anything goes at ruck time, so you're going to lose something. There's a point I've got written down here where Saunders does a dive pass into touch, which I think is particularly entertaining. The, can we talk about Japan's fun tap move that Go they on. run early on, where they get a penalty in the USA 22, oh, yes. and they run it with the fly half, runs a loop around the hooker, and then a double scissors. And unfortunately, the guy he actually pops it to on the scissors drops the ball. Yeah. But it was really fun to watch that because that's one of the things that I would like to come back into rugby one day is yes. just ridiculous tap moves. And I think Hirao is maybe the most talented in a modern sense player I've seen so far. Sure. Like he reads a defence so well. Not he does. Not game, but he reads he a defence phenomenally well. I think, that's a, I think that's an entirely valid point. There's something of like... It's like you dumped 30% of George Ford into the 1987 <laughs> World Cup. Like, he, yeah. he times a pass beautifully. Yeah. Because I think a lot of other pa- players we've seen in this World Cup where you would talk about the passing being great, you're yeah. doing it because they're technically good passers, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't like, kick or needlessly or anything like that, does no. he? I think he's, he's actually quite composed in, like... Not necessarily in a kind of Johnny Wilkinson manner, but more in like no. a Kasuki Ono kind of a manner. You know? Sure, yeah. He just like he is very good at holding his nerve and yeah. holding, waiting until the time is right. Yes. And there's a moment not long after this, and I don't know if we want to lead on to the Japan's first try. Yeah, we can comes do. From him, just th- that move. There's a few times in the lead up where he does this as well, where he like faints on a pass, waits to draw someone in perfectly, then delivers it. Yeah. Kind of like 
or not quite a double pump because he's he's shaping to pass and he's just waiting and holding the ball for the perfect amount of time. Yeah. And Japan's try eventually come, their first try, uh, through Yoshinaka, isn't it? Eventually uh, I think it's, I think it's the winger. I think it's Talmo Falau scores. Oh, of course it is. Sorry. Yeah. But he's, he's in the But Yoshinaga travel, gives the assist. Which never happened there. Yeah. It's impressive, actually, because... timing it perfectly. Yeah, they actually execute a three-on-two really nicely. Yeah. Which we've not seen happen so far. Like, we've not really seen a two-on-one executed well so far. So, <laughs> a three-on-two is it's very well orchestrated by Hirao, as you mentioned. And Yoshinaga mm. times that last pass really well. And, yeah, it gives uh, Tama Falao just enough time to dive into the corner. And it's it's technically quite a good finish. And I think this is actually, by today's standards... Oh, sorry, one... I was thinking of the second try. Sorry. Oh, okay. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the two tries mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But yeah, yes, it's, no, completely. it's really well orchestrated by the Japanese kind of inside backs. Mm. And then, yeah, it's just a technically good finish on the wing. He does exactly what he needs to, to to get the ball down. And yeah, no, it's impressive, as I say, by especially by the standards of 87. It's one of the better tries we've seen so far with this tournament. I think, yeah, it's just a superb try. Hirao uh, identifies the space, jogs into it, and times when to unleash the centres, when to unleash Oshinaga to mm. put down with Lau in. yeah. Times it really well, orchestrates the thing really well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I led on to the second try there, which was the Yoshinaga. That's try. okay. Hilao also um, in the build-up makes a nice break where he dummies past two men. When yeah. arguably he should have given the pass, but the men just fall for the dummy, even though they have him fully marked, because that sometimes happens at this Everyone point. Everyone falls for every dummy. In this <laughs> yeah, no. There's one Hilao throws in the last ten minutes. It's like where... throwing dummies against like, eight-year-olds, so... isn't it? Yeah. There's one he throws in the last 10 minutes where there's not even anyone he could be pat Like, he, there's a winger right out on the touchline. He'd have to really wind up the pass in order to throw it. And he does a little, like, dummies a pop pass. And everyone falls for it. And he just glides through. I love that. I love that. There's also a point where I realised with Japan throwing all his offloads, it just made me think, I wonder who and when the lift pass was invented. Who invented yes. that? Because Japan could have really done with that being a thing in this mm. game. Because of like how late they would time a lot of their runs. And sometimes deliberately. But yeah. obviously it becomes telegraphed when you just pop it to them normally or do a little push pass. But whereas if you lift it to them, it's it's a lot harder to, to kind of, you know, occupy that space. I think Japan really could have benefited if, if that pass existed at this stage of rugby's development. I mean, it was probably bloody Wayne Smith, wasn't it? <laughs> probably was. Probably was. That would be an interesting thing to, as we go back through these World Cups, to realise kind of at what point these these techniques will have evolved. Yeah. Yeah, but the, speaking of things evolving, shortly after that first try, the USA regained the ball around the half meter, halfway line, and they string together a few really lovely offloads and passes and like sequences, yeah. you know, get whipping the ball away. There's a moment where it's quite reminiscent of the try Monte Ioane scored at Twickenham last year. Yes. Where Lamoureux offloads off the floor, and it takes two men out of the game. And the yeah, yeah, quick face, yeah. And, you know, that kind of thing, and then they just draw the numbers down, except they get caught on the wing. And then, I think the USA run... The first two-second ruck in the history of rugby, <laughs> where all the forwards pile in, the ball is so quick, the, full, the scrum off just whips it away. Mm. And obviously, they then get that to the other touchline, because the defence is not set. They're used to, any time there's a ruck, it takes 12 seconds, at which point the referee blows and they have to form a scrum. And instead, like, it's a two-second ruck. It's yeah. properly, like, quick, efficient, and the ball is out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt really notable. And it's crazy the difference that makes, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's not mm. crazy. It makes sense entirely, considering the rucks were all about 10 seconds long at this stage. Yeah. Anyway, but if that... was this this is in the lead-up to the Purcell try, isn't it? Yeah, so they hang an up-and-under, I think. Yes, yes, and Higgins becomes and the first bloody... person to ever catch an up-and-under. 
I this is the moment that Higgins became my absolute hero, right? For one, I want Higgins and Adam Beard to start a Ted Lasso fifteen. Yes, together. yeah, uh, they can, you know, find like I googled it. There's a guy called Charles Kent who played for England in like the thirties. That would do. We need him, and we need someone called like. I mean, Tart and Lasso are more difficult names. Yeah, but... yeah. Sadly, there's there's not an Obasanya playing in the Premiership. <laughs> no. But, you know, one day, one day we'll we'll get them out. We'll, we'll find the rest of them. Yeah. But, right. So, Bloody Higgins takes an up and under, progresses, tries to thread the pass through. And I think in the end just does well to get it away. Higgins, over the course of this game, became my hero. And I didn't know his first name until I looked at the team sheet. Yeah, yeah. Before I start recording. And his name is Kevin. And that just... Kevin Higgins sounds like such an uninspiring middle management of a name. <laughs> he does. <laughs> to say... That not Higgins, not a really flary outside centre for the USA, the plucky underdogs. Who just, like, he has such a... Higgins looks like he actually trains hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, his yeah. core skills are really good. Yeah. He's a flair player, but his core skills are above the rest of that battle. Yeah, yeah, no, he's excellent. I also meant to mention uh, Gary Hine on the left wing. Yeah. Who is largely anonymous the entire game. Yeah, yeah. He is the grandson of a really early NFL legend. Oh, really? His granddad was, like, early days of the National Football League. Really right. big star player. Okay. And then Gary Hine, his grandson, goes on to be anonymous for the USA <laughs> in the Rugby World Cup. I I think that this is the first game where we don't have the father of a current international playing. Not that I can find mm. anyway. Uh, I've I've looked at a few like oh yeah, Fujita. There's an, an international called Fujita. Uh, I've looked at a few like that, and just sadly, there's nothing that I can find. So I, I might be wrong. I hope I am. Okay. But there's no dads got... of uh, current internationals playing in this game. That's a shame. That's yeah. a real shame. Yeah, that's the first game where that's been the case of this World Cup. I mean, I, yeah, it doesn't feel like... I mean, we. I'm assuming Fujita isn't related to Yoshi. Fujita. That's the thing, I've just looked that up. Sadly oh, sorry, not. did you say that? Yeah. I was just reading about Gary Hines' grandfather, sorry. That's okay, that's okay. That's, he was... That, that's what I said when, when uh, uni lecturers uh, said, why are you falling asleep? I said, I'm not, I'm just looking at Gary Hines' grandfather. <laughs> I'm just looking at Gary Hines' grandfather. Yeah. Mel Hine, known by <laughs> the nickname Old Indestructible. That's a good name. Two-time NFL champion. He was the season MVP in 1938. Uh, eight-time first-team all-time pro. Uh, four times he played in the All-Star Weekend, which rugby needs. Yes. Gary Hine in. They retired. The New York Giants retired the number seven after him. Oh, that's cool. He was in the all-time team on the NFL's 100th anniversary. That's cool. He was a like a proper massive legend, and then his grandson played. He won 25 caps for the USA. Yeah, that's respectable, especially yeah. in this day and age. Captained them in the sevens in 1993. Oh, okay. So he was the Zach Test of his day. He was he was the Zach test of his day. That's good, that's good. We need to get Blaine Scully to talk to us about why all of his players are amazing. Because no doubt he idolised these fellas. And oh, of course. With good reason. Ray Nelson must have been some guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Must have been some guy for Blaine Scully to be a, a young fullback growing up in the USA. I think he was born in 1987 as well, come to think of it. Hmm. He went on to play against Japan in 2011 in a warm-up game for that World Cup. Symmetry, man. I think, it was, I think it was like his second cap. Ah, I th- did he talk to us about that when we had him on this podcast? Which Quite you might possibly. remember. Yeah. Um, uh, oh. But I was just looking at other games between Japan and the USA and saw Blaine Scully play them. Uh, I, I love Blaine Scully. We do, of course, have Blaine Warhurst playing yes, this game. Yes, Because there do. has to be a Blaine at all times. Yeah, Blaine Warhurst. <laughs> Sounds like a Game of Thrones character. 
It doesn't sound real at all. <laughs> Blaine Warhurst. I've not actually seen Brian Game of Thrones, Bizarre. but I just think that's that's accurate. <laughs> Billy Kevin Sword sounds like a Game of Thrones kind of eye makeup. No, that's entirely accurate as well. It's bloody Kevin Sword, isn't it? And he's, yeah, yeah. Um, he's just going to visit the Ninky Nonk and the Tombly Boos. Nothing Game of Thrones. The, right. Kevin Sword no, but, going to visit the but they are set in the same universe. What? what? <laughs> we we just referenced rub your cup. Yes, <laughs> and Game of Thrones. I thought you were yes. referencing like in the Night Garden or something like that with the Nonky Nook and the. Wait, is that a different show? I'm saying that in the Night Garden and Game of Thrones are set in the same universe. I thought they were the same program. No, this is a spinoff. Oh, all this time I thought they were the same show. Yeah, yeah, it's like Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep. I was so you know? confused why like half of the movie stars now come from that TV show on CBBS. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know why I just heard you say Nonky Nook and thought that's something from In the Night Garden. No, it is. It is, is it? I was naming things from In the Night Garden. Yes! But the Wait. joke was that they're the same show. I shouldn't be proud that I know that. No, you should. You should okay. be very proud. Only because of you, because you watched that relentlessly. <laughs> I don't know what that means. So, um... And you're older than me. The USA have Tony Ridnall on the bench. <laughs> that's a good story, man. That's a great story. He doesn't come on. No, <laughs> not as anybody else on no, either side. Mike Coldner come. I've certainly warms up when there's an injury in the last minute, but I don't know if he actually guts on or not. Because they curse him and he's jogging on the touchline because someone's down injured. Right, and they throw up Mike Coldner, and then I don't, I don't know if he gets on. Fair, fair enough, I suppose. Uh, I'm just checking if because I've seen that there's a Hirose on the bench for Japan. I want to see if he's KG's dad. Doesn't look like he is. Never mind. As you were. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Right. Let's go on. So yeah, Purcell scores that try uh, in the corner, and immediately the commentator goes, "It's a great try by USA. They won five rucks in a row." And that's what he put it, puts it down to. He's like, oh, that's incredible play. It's a different age, wasn't it? it yeah. Was a different age. Then Nelson nails the touchline conversion oh, as well. Also around the same time, they refer to Mike Purcell as being one of the most experienced players in this USA team. He has 13 caps. <laughs> oh, man. that's the, that, You kind of feel for them at that point, though, don't you? Like, yeah. You know, with, with bloody Nelson being a veteran at five caps and that as well. But yeah, but yeah, no, they, they score that try and, you know, it's quite well worked. And then Japan come back with the Yoshinaga try that you described earlier, 
Yes. Where they have it's properly like this first half is real. It's fun, isn't it? One team scores and the other team. Yeah, scores. yeah, it's fun. I love. And also, I went into this game not knowing the score, not knowing who mm. won. Yeah, and because there's no scoreboard, I had no idea who was winning as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The throw up kind of every 15 minutes uh, to yeah. remind you, but you you'd forget in between. I particularly like the build up for this try where Japan clear the ball. Mm. And the USA winger, Hein, in fact, it is Gary Hein who collects mm. it, tries to beat a few people. And then behind him, he has Saunders ready to ruck over him. And yeah. he also has about 15 Japanese players behind him. And he decides this is a good time to offload the ball. And obviously, Saunders gets swamped and the entire J- Japanese team then just run away with it. They do a really nice quick tap as well, uh, which There's, I think was Fujita himself. I don't know if it's the one you're talking about. There's one... Where Gary Hine is taking the ball from a kick. Yeah. And he's trying to counterattack. Yeah. I think it might be this moment. Yeah. Where he, yeah, as I said, all of the USA players are in front of him still. They haven't. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's just the one behind and him. As some players are jogging back, he tr- he goes to pop the ball forward <laughs> and then stops it just before it leaves his hands. It's brilliant. Clearly having, and it makes more sense now knowing that he's got an NFL background. Yeah. Because he's clearly forgotten the forward pass rule. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I love that he's in the World Cup and he has to think, oh, no, you can't pass forward. Never mind. (laughs) It's not just like second nature to him. There's a point where Vizard, playing eight for Mm. the USA, gets nailed back so hard that he just surrenders the ball. And I've literally never seen that happen on a rugby field before, where he literally just passes the ball to the opposition because he's getting smashed back that hard rather than trying to give it to one of his teammates or whatever. But it's just a way of like begging for mercy and saying, like, no, no, just stop tackling me. You can have the ball. I've never seen that happen, let alone in an international. You saying about how it was harder to keep hold of possession in those days. Mostly because no one bloody wanted Nobody it. Nobody cared. It was voluntary. It was just aimless kicking as well. Like, yeah. At one point in the second half, Hiral puts in a lovely, like, what would be a very modern touch finder, like, splits the the two players in the backfield yeah. and puts out a touch. Like, it would have been a 50-22 if it was Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a beautiful, like, very modern tactical kick. Yeah. And I think it's the only one we've seen all tournaments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's very few, isn't there? Oh, what was, was kicking so aimless. What was the name of that Italian ten who did a fifty twenty two? I've forgotten his name already. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean he was just class. <laughs> he was class when he wanted to be. He was no. It was law of averages with him. Yeah, like, it if was. you kick that much ball, one of them. One, will be yeah, good. absolutely. But yeah, so uh, Yoshinaga scores that try mm. and obviously misses the conversion. Just like beautifully set up by Hirao. Yeah, like really yeah. gorgeous timing on it. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, he missed the conversion because it was between the posts or just next to the posts, so therefore it was mm. very difficult. He was he was quite he had a James Hook like quality to him, did Yoshinaga. Yes. God, the amount of really easy kicks he missed. I mean, we'll we'll go we'll get through this. Yeah, like, I we'll cover this end of the game. But yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Then straight away, the USA strike back again uh, yeah. with Ray Nelson this time, who scores a try. Uh, and you know what? It's a great line, a great fullbacks line by him, and great yeah. hands from Helu to set him up as well. Yeah, I mean, he just picks the line perfectly. Like mm. he, he looks up, sees the J- Japanese defense drifting too hard, and he kind of splits it as they're as they're drifting over to cover uh, Mike Purcell. And frankly, why wouldn't you go out to cover Mike Purcell because he is the absolute danger man? Yes, <laughs> a danger um, man. I if not danger mouse, a danger man and danger mouse, danger animal of all kinds. Yeah, Mike Purcell. You know, uh, he's now seventy years old <laughs> and lives in Aya in Pennsylvania. And you know what? I think he'd still be incredibly dangerous. I think so. In one way or another, he's dangerous, that man. Yeah, he's just, he's a real, real danger. He retired after this World Cup. 
But I think it's mostly because the UN sanctioned him too dangerous. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did hear about that. It was get it was getting it was getting much too 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 stressful for the UN. You know him traveling around the world and so on. It happens. And they went, Mike Purcell, look, you're so dangerous that if you just stayed in one place and plugged yourself into the mains once every three days, you could power all of Pennsylvania. You, you, you have so much dangerous energy that we can harness this into electricity and power an entire state. And so Mike Purcell went, okay, when I get back from Australia slash New Zealand, depending on where the game's being played that day, I, Mike Purcell, the most dangerous man in the world, <laughs> am going to plug myself into the mains every three days and stay in Pennsylvania for the rest of my life. And he has done that. That's good to hear. Uh, the amount of times you'll hear, you know, like Dallin Stanford types refer to players as being like the Duracell bunny. They don't mean literally. No, but Mike Purcell was. Yeah. Mike Purcell was so dangerous because he was basically radioactive. <laughs> you know, uh, people look, there's all kinds of cover ups and conspiracy theories about what happened in Chernobyl. What actually happened is Mike Purcell had a wee. <laughs> But yeah, Ray Nelson picks a good line. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about, I forgot about the bit about the rugby and the, the game that we're meant to be covering. I got too carried away from your story of Mike Purcell now living in true story. Like, true story. I did my research. Factory or something in Pennsylvania. Yeah, no, it's good to good to good to hear you've done your research. And this is this is what good rugby punditry and coverage is yep. all about. Is about yep. knowing what Mike Purcell is currently doing. <laughs> it's like Clive Woodward's falling over all the time. <laughs> that and he's only got one leg now yeah uh, yeah, he does yeah this was because he's falling over yeah yeah <laughs> Mike Purcell this is his penultimate cap sadly oh is it uh, that's a yeah, shame there's one more game before his batteries run out that's it yeah then, then he has to go home he has to go home and be and power all recharge the entire state yeah 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 they There's... consider trying neighbouring states with him but it's a bit dangerous you know uh, so it's ironic you... that he's more dangerous than Kevin Sauce <laughs> Yeah, it is actually. And it is. Blaine Warhurst. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's some, and Jeremy Clarkson, and Jeremy Clarkson, who is, of course, a the car. best ten in the world. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good. Joe one. Clarkson's an interesting player. Can we talk about Joe Clarkson for a Yeah, minute? go on then. Because Joe Clarkson is an interesting fly half. Because he's a fly half who very much looks like a fly half. Like he, he plays like a fly half. But I can't tell if he's any good or he just. It seems like a fly half, and that seems like a I think he fancies era. himself. He can't kick, oh, he and he's like nope. flanker weight. <laughs> like, um... but he he has this like nice. I t- no, I tell you what it is, right? Yeah, Joe Clarkson is very good at picking the times at which he should dummy and do a little dummy and shimmy, right? And that to me made him look like a fly half because only fly halves have the game awareness to throw dummies at this. Sure, point. yeah, I think. He has fly half energy, and that's why he's yes. playing fly half. Yes. I think nothing about him screams fly half except his energy is that of a I fly agree. half, I and agree. therefore he is the USA's national team's number ten. I found him. I don't. I can't tell you if he's good or bad, but I found him a fascinating player to watch. Mm, yeah, and whenever he had I the ball, him. I was like, it was hard to take my eyes off Joe Clarkson, sure. the greatest ten in the world. Yes, yes. Also, so back to the uh, the Ray Nelson try. What, the other thing I like about this so is it's, that he... It's amazing that nobody would have made that joke at the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And now, 
probably now it's just too obvious. Every time he comes to the UK, he probably has people saying, "Oh, you like Jeremy Clarkson, aren't you?" It's funny. Do you think in the years to come, people will ba- look back and because there's a you know at this point like in 2050 the equivalent of Gok One is called like Peter Emmerich and they'll look back on the 2011 World Cup and be like Gok One's playing 13 for the USA (laughs) which he actually was in 1991 but we'll come on to that on a different podcast where Gok One played for America he was uh, of course this week on Celebrity Tipping Point which for anyone who isn't British is a bizarre television (laughs) programme to try and explain it's a quiz show it's a bit like those games you see at arcades yeah. where you drop coins in in the hope that it tips more coins off the edge. Um, he was on uh, Celebrity Tipping Point. This week. I didn't even uh, know it was a celebrity version of Tipping Point. Yep. One of the questions he was asked was, in 2018, Razi Erasmus became the director of rugby of which national rugby team? Oh, wait, you sent me that. I just didn't look I up and go, that. oh, that's Gok Wan being asked that question. Gok Wan was asked this week about Razi Erasmus and he said New Zealand was his answer. Close, it's close. Not geographically. No. So that's my little Gok One. Yeah. Also, if you're not British, you don't know who Gok One is anyway. Yeah, that's, so. that's true. Do you know um, when... Um, well, no, he played for America in 1991 World he Cup. What are you on about? He played for America Gok in Wan the World did. Cup. Do, do you know what uh, position he played? he taught his team to look good naked. Do, do, do you know what position he played? Go on. One. Oh, because... Cool. So um, yes. Yeah, so anyway, this 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 Ray Nelson try. Um, the other he, thing is that oh, yeah, he Nelson. doesn't run it under the post, even though he's completely unopposed. No. If anything, he runs it further away, and then he nails the conversion anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's massive Carlos Spencer. Energy. Yeah, yeah. And then the USA go in eleven fifteen up. Yeah, well, it's Carlos Spencer no, energy, except he's not Carlos Spencer. He's bloody Ray Nelson, who might or might not be American. <laughs> Brian Vizard towards yeah. the end of the first half as well gets penalised for, instead of doing a handoff, he just swings his arm straight into the player's face So yes, he's carrying the ball. I was going to have... That was John Everett, the hooker. Oh, I forgot. I thought it was Vizard. Yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, I was I was going to talk about this. Uh, that he, yeah, so he collects a ball, a ball in the backfield where, mm. you know, because it's all disorganised. And I love his approach to counter-attacking where he does a dummy kick past the first man yeah. and then sidesteps. And then he thinks, right, okay, I need to not go into touch here. What do they usually do? Hand-off? And he just punches his man in the face? He I just, just swings his arm full force straight into the face. Yeah, and then the referee just penalises him and goes, no, you can't do that. You're not meant to punch him. Uh, and I just love that approach to counter-attacking. And I just think that more more modern fullbacks should do that. Imagine Freddie Stewart back. doing that. Freddie Stewart should do that yeah. against Wales. Yeah, he should. we need more red cars this year. Yeah, 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 that's true. If he's got sausage to step, then he probably will. Yeah. Win Jones so, sausage, that is. Yes, we also have, towards the end of that half as well, Japan take another penalty uh, from just next to the post. It wasn't quite between at this time. And obviously they miss. The USA, from the dropout, I believe it's Joe Clarkson that goes to absolutely... And you can see him like put weight behind it and try and hit it as hard as he can. And it doesn't cross the 22. <laughs> and he really so tried then, his hardest, didn't he? He really tried. Yeah. There's a few fun chips like that, mainly from Clarkson. There's one that Cheetah, the Japanese yeah. eight, does that goes completely sideways, which is a lot of fun. The USA then take the scrum against the head, though, so it works out. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they keep the ball in hand next time, so they've learned from their mistakes, which is enough. It's better than what England did in the, the game we watched for them against Australia, yes. so it's it's worth something. So we're getting to half time. Yes. Right? So I want to throw up a stat from halftime. Go on. Right? The penalty count in that first half. So the USA were penalised nine times, Japan once. 
<laughs> and yet USA that were leading. Tells you everything. Yep. Yeah. And like, I I usually do this thing where I um I count up what the score would have been if they'd got all the kicks. I didn't do that today because I just knew the score score was close enough that mm. even if all the kicks that they missed were worth half a point each, I know that Japan would have won the game. So do you want do you want the stat? Go on. Kind of spoilers, I guess. But no one listened to this, guess. <laughs> the score is literally in the title of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> if Japan got the only the kicks that were between the posts that they missed, only the kicks that, like, an under-13s kicker could have made. Sure, yeah. Right? <laughs> they would have won by five points. <laughs> That's significant enough as well, because a couple of them must have been conversions as well. Like... Yeah. Oh, Two man. conversions, three penalties, I believe. That's uh, maybe four penalties. That's ludicrous. They yeah. yeah, they were two from ten in the end. Their goal kicking. So they missed by the end of the game. So they missed eight kicks. They missed thirteen points between the posts. Bloody hell! That's so it's more than five points. Yeah, it's because yeah. they only lost by three in the end. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, so USA wouldn't have got a losing bonus point if they existed at this point. Yeah, look at me being on Michael Checker. That's that's a really staggering statistic. Basically, Japan were all right. Just and you know what, Yoshinaga was all right with ball in hand. Yeah, but kicking so, at goal, nah. Hirao was such a well-rounded footballer. Why couldn't he kick? I goals? was shocked by Why that. Why would he to be, be at least third choice kicker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd... And like uh, yeah. Shogo Makai, the fullback we haven't mentioned at all. No, looked solid. Like he was a really solid fullback. You think? <laughs> Why? We'll come on to him. We'll come on to him. Second half starts. Second half starts. Mm. Japan get a penalty on halfway. And go for a bomb instead of going for touch, which I think is quite an interesting tactic. See, okay, but there's a point later on, towards the end of the game, with about 10 minutes to go when they're obviously behind and they're looking for a try in order to get back level. And because you didn't get the line-out throw if you kicked into touch from a penalty, it was the opposition got the ball yeah. at the time. The commentator criticises them and says, with such short players and they're struggling so much on the line-out, they should just try and bomb the ball in the air from a penalty like this. They have some such good ball, they should just be oh. bombing it in the air randomly. So it's clearly an established tactic because yeah. no one can catch the ball. That's why exactly. I did. I did think that's actually not a bad shout going for that because I was yeah. very shocked when Vizard actually caught that ball and he, he mm. caught it excellently under pressure as well. Like and he managed to lay it back for his teammates and they managed to exit from there and it was it was impressive because when they went for that I kind of actually thought oh that's actually kind of smart. You see a lot of teams do it for free kicks these days, yeah, but not from a full penalty because you just think territory you know will chance the line out. But yeah, no, it's quite interesting at this point because everybody's been dropping the ball so far in the yeah. tournament. So fair play to them for giving that a go. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. The only thing I've got written from this kind of like start of the half bit for yeah. me is, guys, Higgins is class. <laughs> and, oh no, so he does a support run, catches up after the, this is actually in the lead up to the try by Mike Purcell, the most dangerous man in the world. Okay, yeah. Which I think is, no, it's the end of the first That's half. That's the one in the first half, yeah, yeah. The end of the first half, sorry, okay, no, I've got that mixed up, but I just have that he is absolute class and also there's a really terrible tackle attempt by uh onuki yeah who is not bothered no 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 no. it's like watching matt provero being invented (laughs) (laughs) although onuki does make an absolute shot towards the end of the first half as well he absolutely nails his man i think it is personal i think it is yeah yeah where he invents the hurt arena (laughs) yes what if matt provero ran the hurt arena i love it though because like he does that and Purcell drops the ball as a result. 
because of line speed and pressure. And then the next time Anuki gets the ball, Purcell does exactly the same thing back to him. And he's like, oh, that's quite a good tactic. Do you mind if I borrow that? And he gives it a go and it works. Yeah. And Anuki, every time he gets the ball, either drops it or just steps around everybody. It's great. The Did you watch the halftime punditry? Yes, but... With Korg and Murray Mextet. <laughs> I'll level with you. I was watching Peep Show at the same time. <laughs> It's almost as farcical. Korg, the Taika Waititi character, yeah. refers to the Mike Purcell try as having come from a superb attack when it's literally a speculative bomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. you got to love the 1987 punditry, haven't you? That was a, it was a superb attack, though. Yeah. The, so... We're, we're probably, in terms of our timeline, in terms of, mm. from a storytelling perspective, we're about 10 minutes into the second half, right? 10, 15 sure, minutes sure. is where we're at timeline-wise. Then... <laughs> yeah, okay. Are we, are we thinking of the same thing? When Japan opt for goal. Oh, no, okay. And the commentators say, I think he's wise to do that. And you know what? It, it paid off because they actually got the kick. Yeah. But I was just thinking, like, why on earth would you do that? But that was when they changed kicker and... um the USA went into the lead. Next is the thing that you're thinking of. Yes. So, I... How do we best describe this? Well, I've got it written down as well. Mukai, dick of the day, is wrapped up. Oh, no, that's not the thing I'm thinking of. Okay, what's the thing you're thinking of? I mean, no, the thing you're thinking of is pretty golden. As you say, dick of the day is... And you've attributed it to the wrong man, I'm pretty sure. Oh, have I? But... Yeah, that I know what you're talking about. What I'm talking about is mid-sentence, the commentator stops talking, right? There's a stoppage in play. Did you get this? Did you I, see this? I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you skip over stoppages and stuff? No, 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 no. No. There's a moment, <laughs> mid-sentence... But, but you where... know, this was probably the point where Jeremy forgot the turkey. It's a Christmas joke. Yeah. No, it was actually the episode where right. uh, they have the house party and those people turn up and Nick marks lasagna. Anyway, carry on. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a good, good episode. Good on. Yeah, yeah. So the commentators are mid-sentence when one of them stops talking. And then we just hear a baby cry. Oh, it's like a toddler crying. What? It sounds like, it sounds like a two or three-year-old, not a baby. Uh, just sort of like crying or laughing somewhere in the middle. I missed and then this! There's another voice sort of shouting alongside, like, I'm like, ah, like an adult voice, like a woman's voice, um, so I, who I assume is their mother. And then they say something along the lines, I've got it written down, of the woman's voice, and it says, all right, we'll do it the hard way. And then there's sort of this, this shouting, the, the child shouting continues for a few seconds. <laughs> and then there's just silence on the commentary. For about 40 seconds, I think I timed it, it's like 38 seconds of silence, in which nothing is said. At which point, the commentator then says, well, of course, their forward structure's been very interesting so far. <laughs> you see, so the thing is, I, I missed this. Either they but... sent the wrong... They changed the wrong audio track. Yeah. Or a toddler broke into the commentary booth and started shouting over the microphone. <laughs> oh, I would do and it their mother had to come and remove them. The thing is, I, th- I don't recall this, but it rings mm. a bell, which makes me think, I probably d- did actually hear this, yeah. but 
I just reg- filtered it to the back of my mind because I'm so used to just the 80s being nuts when watching these <laughs> these games back. Yeah. But clearly, like, my brain has normal, I can't, like, com- compartmentalised, I can't say that word, compartmentalised, you... that just utter madness that's <laughs> happening in the broadcasting of these games. Well, because I was eating my tea whilst watching this game yesterday. Okay, this and... wasn't during half-time, this was during the actual during game. During the game, during okay, the game, okay. there's a stoppage in okay. play. Like, I finished injured. watching Peep Show at this point. So this had, <laughs> this this was... Someone was I... down injured, like, so I saw this, this happened during it. Yeah, I presume so. Unless you skipped over the injury, yeah, yeah. Unless you kind of skipped forward during it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was eating my tea and I kind of looked down and as I looked back up, well, no, I kind of like jolted back up and I just heard a baby start crying. Oh my god! Over the commentary instead of these kind of very placid Kiwi. Men. I just did not register that. <laughs> That's. I don't. I don't know what happened. I don't know what, or how, or why that happened. What if that baby was playing Scully? Oh my god. He what would if? have been three months old at this point. And they were crying because they just saw Mike Purcell, the most dangerous man in the world. Yes. And then had a realisation, that has to be me one day. I have to play in that 14 shirt for the USA. Or I have to be the next Ray Nelson. Because that's more inspirational. Yes. Just yeah. Just being be... dangerous. Wanting yeah. to be a Scottish person who's not going to play for Scotland, Scottish so pretend they're American instead. Slightly like Matt McKnight. Do you think that's his qualification? Yeah. I, I, I look like this like cool American, American guy who's who not born not yet. yet. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. Yes. So we then have, and it is shortly after the baby screaming and crying. Mm. I think it actually might be the reset of the game. A scrum pretty much on halfway for the USA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the ball goes into the scrum. Looks like a pretty normal scrum when Brian Vizard picks up the ball at number eight. And the the Japanese nine, Ikuta, uh, goes like he. It's one of those, right, where he goes to tackle Mike Saunders, his opposite number, but he's most he's not doing it. He's not marking him because he thinks he's getting the ball. He's marking him because he's an easier tackle if he does get the ball. He chooses not to tackle Vizard. He kind of he does it as a scapegoat. He does it so he can go. Oh no, sorry, I was just marking him because he's smaller. But. but right. I think that is actually more encouraging than Hiral, who doesn't move. When you watch this back, and I did rewind it to watch it again, Hiral stands still. <laughs> and look, I thought Hiral was magical with the ball in play. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to function or move when the ball <laughs> is not going into his hands. You know in, you know, on um, rugby games when you get a glitch and somebody's rooted to the spot? Yes. <laughs> he yeah. was that. He feels like a session fly half. Yeah, like you yeah. Bring him in for your attack, and yeah, then he's just yeah. kind of not present for the rest because he's, yeah. he's not being paid for that. Like that was maybe it. Like he'd agreed to come come from Richmond to play this World Cup on the condition that they didn't want him to make tackles. Yeah, and then the, the coach starts having go with him and goes, "No, no, no! I'm doing you a favor here. I'm one of your best players." So uh, Bill Nye infamously signed on to the film about time uh, on the condition he didn't have to do any acting. Right. Um, <laughs> And that's you know, very he, much the vibe of Hiral. That's, that's the vibe. It's like, look, I'm, I'll, I'll do this, but I'm not doing any of the hard bits. No, no, no. Yeah, like, I, I will be myself. I will, I will not do any acting. Sure, I sure. will not do any tackling. I will not do any defending. I will not kick the goals. <laughs> that is an imposition on me. Don't you know who I am? I play for Richmond. Yeah. I should be in the Ted Lasso <laughs> on team. his co- on his contract. Uh, where he's got it written down, like, name, Seiji Haral. Position, dummy thrower. Yes. (laughs) 
What do you bring to this team? I am the thrower of dummies. I will time one pass beautifully per half. I will look like an absolute magician if Ruddy Dart is making a highlights compilation. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. So he avoids the tackle and Vizard storms on through right past halfway, past the 10 meter line. He eats up about 30 meters in this run. And it's not like a typical number eight run where he busts tackles and he carries people on his back. He just runs into open water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At which point, Mackay, the fullback, comes in to try and make the tackle. And he throws the most speculative offload yeah. you'll see f- until Japan next get the ball. <laughs> yeah. And it actually works. He offloads to Gary Lambert, doesn't he? Is it Gary sort Lambert of. he gets? Um, no, it's Blaine Watthurst. Oh, yeah. Watthurst. Yes, but it's his foot, isn't it? Yeah. So it connects, the ball lands on Warhurst's foot, who just kicks the ball on. And it's not a beautiful touch like Fujita did in the first half. Like, he just hammers it as far as he can. And the ball bounces towards about the 10-meter line. At which point, Telma Falau is tracking back. And he... He... (laughs) He kicks it into his own in-goal area. He kicks it into his own in-goal area. And I have no idea why. It doesn't look like an accident. No, it doesn't look like... Because sometimes it's the correct option to just boot the ball into touch. Again, if in doubt, kick it out. Sure. Sometimes it's the correct call to do that and just get it off the park, reset, have a set piece, whatever. But it doesn't look like he's even doing that. And I don't know if it's just that he connects badly with the ball, but he also has enough time that he could pick it up and kick it out. Or that he could pick it up and try and run a little bit. But instead, he just kicks it into his own in-goal area without having picked it up. And who should be perfectly positioned inside that in-goal area? But uh, it's not Purcell, is it? It's Lambert. It's Lambert who scores the try, isn't it? No, 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 no. It's Warhurst. Warhurst. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm just just watching it back and he does it absolutely... I've just got got the clip back up. Okay. He does it absolutely deliberately. He's... No, I'll tell you what he's doing. I'm watching it back like frame by frame. Yeah. He's trying to boot the ball over the touchline. He tries to hit it with the side of his foot to kick it over the... Touchline. He then looks surprised when the ball ricochets into the dead ball. When he doesn't manage to pull off this incredibly cultured skill. Because it's about 10 metres in field. Right. Also, there's two USA players herring down on him. Like, it is a difficult thing for him to put that ball out. He's definitely going to kick to the touchline. Okay. 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 He He could have just picked it up and taken it behind his own goal line, though. But the thing is, right? Bloody Gary Hayne, the grandson of. Whoever the hell it is, the unstoppable machine Um, or whatever his name was. Yeah, is absolutely herring down. He's right by the touchline there next to him. So he'd probably kick it straight to Hayne. Yeah, yeah. But instead, he kicks it over his dead ball line where Warhurst just dives on. (laughs) And the USA score what I guess goes on to become the winning try. Yeah, Yeah. Warhurst is just absolutely delighted and just throws his arms in the air and, you know, like understandable massive celebration yeah yeah so i actually attributed when i said dick of the day is wrapped up i did attribute it to the wrong man you're absolutely right but yeah i feel like it's quite a few basically all of these um 1987 episodes i've basically given away dick of the day votes early but there's there's more contenders so it's not wrapped up there were loads there were loads of contenders yeah yeah because it is a 1987 rugby match yes nelson gets the conversion again Right out on the touchline. Yeah. 21-14 to the USA now. Bounces off the crossbar. Yeah. It's delightful. Off the crossbar. Over the touch judges look delighted. The touch judges look at each other like, we've just seen some shit. Yeah, yeah. This was 
God. So, speaking of world firsts, like you said earlier about world first, bit of line speed, you know, mm. clever kick and whatever else. The world's earliest 50-22 save comes in here. When, yes. Uh, yeah. When uh, I think uh, I, I, I'm not sure entirely who it is. I think it's Nelson goes for a fifty twenty two. I think it's Purcell. Purcell. Purcell goes for a fifty twenty two, and then Hirao uh, blocks it from going into touch, like it actually would have been the opposition's throw in. Uh, yes. I think that's incredible. Like that's that's thirty years ahead of your time. You've done that. He do, he he is that. He is a player ahead of his time, and he spends the time he should be defending reading up on the future of rugby. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a fun thing. Yeah, then there's uh, Vizard getting nailed and surrendering the ball and just throwing it straight to Japan. Um, Onuki struggles an incredible amount of one high ball where he drops it behind him. He then fumbles it again, kicks it backwards, which you know was the trend amongst Japanese wingers at the time. Yeah, all wingers fumbles at the it time. on the floor, regathers it right as Mike Purcell gets right up in his face and offloads it to Makai, who finds a really good touch finder. <laughs> To his credit. I do love all of the really accidental, incredible stuff that goes on it's in this whole World Cup so far, to be fair. Mukai has a vibe of, if he was from any other nation, he'd be going, oh, for God's sake, the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. instead, he's just very calmly going about his work. Sure, yeah. He's got this kind of, like, real workman energy about him. Yeah. No, I, I get it. There's, there's a good um, accidental break Yoshinaga makes where they uh, they give him the ball off a scrum mm. and then it's meant to be this oh, really yeah. intricate move where everyone's running different lines off him and all of them somehow manage to mistime it like in different ways and then he just kind of dummies to all of them, runs backwards and steps like four people and mm. accidentally makes a break into the USA 22. I don't think it actually results in anything. I think it maybe results in them missing a shot at goal. Yeah, I think it, I think they missed a shot at goal from a penalty for it. Yeah, but which is what happened pretty much every good time feet. they got the ball. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's another really lovely move they run. Yeah, where they interlink like from one touchline to the other, and it gets up to Harau mm. and the far touchline. They use a dummy runner. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a couple of them. Yeah, like, I mean, dummy runner There's a long thing in the history of Japanese rugby of like set-piece moves, like, designed back moves being a huge part of their rugby culture. Yeah, yeah, And a huge thing that, like, practiced and learnt and so on. Yeah. Uh, in a way that the rest of the world kind of caught up to. And, like, they weren't necessarily invented in Japan, but, like... And they weren't even necessarily popularised by Japan. Yeah. But it was just such a huge part of how they played the game. It was viewed yeah. as, like, essential to their, their style of rugby. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few of those. And there's then... There's one where they run a move like that that looks lovely. They get it to one touchline, then they recycle it over to the other, which is very reminiscent of how they would go on to play under Eddie Jones. Mm, um, yeah. There's a few moments like that, and I think it's that one, where it then gets out to Harau on the touchline, uh, who takes an offload off another player. And he goes to Fred through like a no-look grubber for himself to chase, which was something Utamora did against Ireland, which resulted in a try for one of the wingers, and I forget who it was, this summer in right. June. Right, yeah, yeah. And he goes to do that, but it's blocked by Ray Nelson, because what a legend, and he just who just hoofs the ball into touch. But I think with a lesser fullback, that sure. would have been a really gorgeous Yeah, skill. yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting stuff like that happened. There's, of course, the, the Miyamoto disallowed try. Miyamoto yes. was quite fun, by the way. I, um, I enjoyed Miyamoto, the he, number six. He liked kicking the ball a lot as well. And yes, you know, he just, just sort of everywhere. Yeah. He's incredibly energetic as a player. I enjoyed like, him. He just really put himself about, yeah. carried a lot. Wasn't the biggest guy, but just really no, threw himself yeah. into everything. 
Yeah. But yeah, he, he had a try disallowed in the last sort of five minutes or so where he really like outstretched and it looked like a try in real time, but the referee called yeah. it spot on that he did knock it on just in the, the lead up to the grounding. And USA sort of exit, but... Well, there's a... yeah. This goes on for quite a while, these kind of last 10 minutes, where Japan are on the USA line and a try puts them back in it. Uh, a try puts them three points behind. Oh, no, sorry, a converted trial put them one point behind. Yeah. But, you know, obviously they're not assuming that. And they... Now, really great defence in 1987 looks like a succession of flukes. So I can't work out if the USA were defending incredibly well or getting incredibly lucky or Japan were blowing chances. Yeah, a bit of all of the above, I think. Yeah, because the USA hold them out for about seven or eight minutes. Yeah. And it's con- they're constantly given scrum fives and so on, and the USA gets scrum five, but they can't. I mean, Joe Clarkson does really well behind his own goal line under lots of pressure to clear the ball up to about, you know, 15 metres out. Mm-hmm. But Japan are constantly attacking, constantly there, and they're constantly not quite scoring. You know, they have one held up, they have one, the, uh, as you mentioned, Miyamoto tries disallowed. And then eventually, one of the scrum fives, it all just clicks, and they just drive the ball over. <laughs> You say they drive it over. Yes. It's it's interesting I mean, what it's happens. A... So it's Talma Falau scores the try again, isn't it? No, it's... But... Oh, no, no, okay, it is Walsh. Yeah. I thought it was the scrum off. I thought it was... Ikitana. No, no, no. It, no, it was the yeah, winger. So, because wingers are allowed to be offside at this point. <laughs> so the ball comes loose, but so it's they're, technically... They're driving, they're driving the ball. It looks like it's going to be a pushover try. Yeah. yeah. The ball spills out. Yes, on the right-hand side of mm. the scrum. So Walsh technically, it's a kick assist by Shida. <laughs> <laughs> yes. because it squirts out from his his right boot accidentally kicks it forward and it comes out she of the scrum and Talma Falau just dives on it I say he dives on it he kind of gets a fingertip he, on it he kind of yeah there's like a fingertip on one part of the ball and it fumbles forward yeah so a TMO now it'll be down to a TMO's interpretation nowadays yeah, it's a really yeah. tight one but I think it's uh, a try at the time it was just given yeah. I, who cares uh, yeah exactly know? I think it's, it's more of a try than the David Campesi one yes so Yes, very true. So that turns out to be the last play of the game because obviously they missed the conversion and are two from 10, as I say. So the final score is United States of America 21, Japan 18. Yeah, which I think is probably a fair reflection. Yeah. I think Japan looked the better team, but Uh when you're missing eight shots at goal, you can't kind of justify literally anything. No, no, no. You can't be like, oh yeah, we deserve to win that, lads. Yeah, I think the USA did deserve to win. But the best part of this entire game comes after the final whistle. Because the very last thing before the coverage ends... Have yes. you got a recording of this? Or... No, but I have got this written down. Yes, I have because this written it down. it back to the guy in the studio, the presenter, who looks... He has such a smug look on his face, like... God, he's like he's just turned to Taika Waititi and Murray Mekzed and gone, guys. I've got the best line. Yeah, ever. it's like, an I'm, accidental are you, are you partridge. Ready? Are you ready? Oh, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the best line you've ever was, heard. It's gonna be so good. I say accidental partridge. Alan Partridge didn't exist really at this point. It's, no. it's a deliberate partridge, isn't it? So he says at Ballymore and Brisbane, there the dollar too strong for the yen. And he's got a look on his face like he's so proud of himself for coming up with that. What I love about it is that the coverage just stops there. Yeah, that's that the video it. finishes, and there's there's nothing more. They've got, they had to leave in that one line, and then that's it. That's it done. They could have not but gone like back the to the studio. No, it then. <laughs> but it then, I imagine could have when they go early. great, we're off air, and then it cuts in, and Korg turns. I was like, yeah, great line, bro. Yeah, I thought that was a really funny one. 
Because the, the dollar beats the yen. Then that on. kid from earlier comes in and uh, and goes, what do you mean the dollar beats the yen? What does that mean? Because it's a kid. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the poor child. Yeah. I want to find that to put that on the end of the podcast or something. That was a yeah extraordinary moment. Okay, yeah. Okay, have we covered most of the game? I think we've covered all of the game. Cool. I mean, we haven't really talked about Kevin Higgins, which is a shame. No. But I thought he was class. There's more Just content real... for him to come, you'd imagine. Yeah, real, like, burst of pace, had good hands, really good under the high ball, especially to say he wasn't even a fullback. Yeah. Would well, really, you want to do really Man of the Match? Generally by Kevin Higgins. Yeah, which I think leads us on to Man of the Match. Yeah. So I thought Kevin Higgins, for the, who's a 13 for the USA... I wrote him down as Man of the Match, like, as, he a, is, as a contender. He is one of, kind of, two standout contenders for me, I think. Yeah. Well, no, three, I guess. Because Ray Nelson, I think, is... Yeah, he's good. He's, he's very good. solid, yeah. but I think makes quite a lot of mistakes along the way. As he yeah, does. yeah, of course he does. Um, I, say, I enjoyed Miyamoto. I think Fujita actually has a good game as well. Yeah, for, yeah, for he was good. I enjoyed him. And I think Hayashi actually is kind of everywhere. He keeps popping up, the Japanese captain. Yeah. But my man of the match could not be anyone but the the session magician himself, Sajay Harao, who is, I think, by quite some distance... He's excellent. Every... Anything you would want to put on like a highlights package, you'd want to put on like a this is the best stuff that happened at the 1987 World Cup that happens in this game is entirely down to him. Sure. He is the player who stands out and he is, I think, about. He throws dummies. He can't kick any points. Yep. I think all three of Japan's tries are actually the position for the last one, but not the try itself. Yeah. Yeah. From him. Yeah. He is crucial to everything Japan do well. And for me, yeah, Soji Harao is the man of the match. Excellent for me. As I, said, I wrote down, I wrote down Kevin Higgins, but my man of match is Ray Nelson. Nice. If you're good enough to get a positive Ruddy Data review, then you deserve man of the match from Will Owen. So uh, he, uh, he scores a try. Does. He gets his kicks. He does a lot of crap along the way. Don't get me wrong, but you know he puts in a, a lot of good kicks, and I think that he had the biggest positive impact for this USA team for me personally. So yeah. I'm I'm going with Nelson as my man of the match. So we're going to go into Dick of the Day in a second. Yes. However, anybody who follows me on Twitter who's listening to this may remember that about a month ago, I promised a story on this podcast. Oh, of course. So I am kind of a reigning Dick of the Day. So we, we always do Man of the Match Dick of the Day at the end of this. So it was the second to last match I played. Uh, at the time when I tweeted this, it was uh, it, that was on the day that I I played. But I recently played in a friendly match for, for my team, Long Eaton. In a second team match, you know, because I'm not good enough to be in the first team. And I got Dick of the Day for that match for opposing rugby values. And yes, oh. that's what I was told off for. And I got done for this in Kangaroo Court a month later for opposing rugby values. And this podcast was actually brought up on that by um friend of the pod, Ryan Holden, who listens to this, um, <laughs> listens to every episode. And hi, hi, Ryan. Thanks for this. But he, he, he mentioned the podcast. He mentioned that uh, I should know better because what happened was I was looking at, we, we had a centre or winger playing at fly half, doesn't usually play there, who was kicking the goals. So he didn't have a kicking tee. I had just a cone that I was bringing onto the field to that he could kick off. And, you know, somebody holds it on there and he kicks it over. And you know what? He was doing an excellent job. And then my uh, under-15s fly half turned up, who brings his kick to just to watch the game, not to, to play. Yeah. But he brings his kicking tee absolutely everywhere with him. And I went, you know what? Have you got your kicking tee on you? Took the kicking tee from him. And he said, yeah, that's fine. You can use it. That's fine. I'm getting the kicking tee. And our 10 of the, for, on the day was still nailing everything. And it was great. We were about about 30 to 40 points up as half time struck. First play of the second half, opposition scored. Mm. So the score was now probably about 31-5, I think it was. And then the opposition kicker then turns to me and goes, oh, can I borrow your tea? And I go, no. 
And then yeah, they, they've got their hooker there as well, who was being a knob all day, and saying, like, "Oh, come on, mate, give us your tea. You know, it's it's only fair." And I go, "No, get your own." And so, well, mine's all the way over there. I was like, "Go over there and get it then." At which point, all of my teammates were heckling me and saying, "Like, oh, come on, just give them the tea. Don't be a dick. You know, we're thirty points up. It's a friendly." And I was just thinking, "No, they should bring their own tea." And yeah, got got done for it afterwards. Uh, yeah, opposed rugby values. Hope. I do appreciate how literal an interpretation of dick of the day that is. Yeah, yeah. Usually it's just given to somebody who does something stupid, but yeah. I kind of was being a dick there. You you kind of were being a dick. I understand it and respect it Yeah. if you're playing in the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also kind of forgot it was a friendly, but I think that's a good thing, right? Sure, you never treat yeah. it as a friendly. Hey, hey, there's no friendlies in rugby. Exactly. No friendlies in rugby. There's only values. Yeah. Precisely, precisely. But yeah, I oppose rugby values, got dick mm. of the day for not surrendering a kicking tee, which wasn't even mine. That kicking tee is just so different. Yeah, it is. It's a very good kicking tee, actually. I've, you know, the, 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 like 40, the, the 14-year-old like kid who kicks with it uh, has a 78% kicking percentage so far this season. So, Which is better than Owen Farrell. Yeah. Anyway, should we do dick of the day? Sure, yeah. Uh, it's you. Yes, it's me. So I've I've kind of already given it away that I'm going to give it to Tamar Falau for giving away that that try at the end. Also, I've nominated Yoshinaga for missing about a dozen kicks. Yep. Everett for throwing that punch on the counter-attack was just a lot of fun. Ray Nelson for his grubber into touch was also a lot of fun. Uh, Yeah, I I think that's that's my selection of Dick of the Days. One other contender I have that you haven't mentioned. Obviously, Yoshinaga, I think, deserves a bigger mention for missing... Four yeah. shots between the posts. Yeah, and a couple <laughs> more as well. And not even looking that bad about it. Like normally, when you see kickers missing like that, they look really gut of themselves. Yeah, you remember, you remember that Carlo Cano almost crying after missing the shot of goal. Yeah, yeah, playing friendly in situations. Yeah. That kind of thing. They always look gutted with themselves or annoyed with themselves. Yeah, he was just like did not okay. care. Didn't want to do any better than he already was. But his opposite number, Kevin Higgins, my hero, at one point is the mispass goes to him off a scrum, and he just drops the ball under no pressure. And I wrote in my notes, on Higgins, why would you betray me like this? <laughs> yeah, I um, think that's valid. And that treachery, betraying me when I thought he was the only person in 1967 who could catch, was, was a moment of disappointment. But it's not quite as big as Talma Falau knocking the ball backwards into his own in-goal yeah. area and just gifting Blaine Warhurst a try. Just so that's gifting two votes for Talma Falau, right? Two votes for Talma Falau. Wow. That's, 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 does that maybe put him in the lead? Far? I can't remember if we've given everyone else two votes. Mate, have you already forgotten about Serafino Gazzoni? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. How could I? How could I? What the player? legendary Italian fullback. So, ironically, this week's really crap fullback is actually a winger. Yep. So, uh, currently leading the stakes. Um, dick of the day... We have a joint between Talma Falau and Grizzoni. Yeah. But the leader on Man of the Match is a draw between Serge Blanco and Fabio the Dog. <laughs> That's excellent. That's brilliant. Especially because I'm pretty sure on the Christmas episode, at least one of us gave Man of the Match to Oh, a I, dog, didn't count, didn't I didn't count Man no, of the no, Match. No, 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 no. I'm not saying you should. I'm right. not saying you should. But I think at least one of us gave Man of the Match to a dog on that. So, you know, if, it's, if it comes down to a tie break, then sure. I reckon the dog takes it. That's my point. Forget the guy representing the human race and all the humans were given around the match. Forget that. (laughs) Really, I think humanity is the real winner. It's somewhere between humanity and rugby. Or manatee. Am I right, lads? Look, if only. So, 
I think that brings us through the end of... How are all of our episodes an hour and a half plus now? We've got nothing to talk about no, yet. There's a lot There's a lot to talk about. Yeah. There's a lot to cover. Look, yeah. There's a lot of knock-ons we've got to discuss in detail. Very true. Very true. Um, sorry it's been so long since the last one. Yeah. Uh, it's excellent to be back. It is. And we will be back next week where the game in question will be Canada against Tonga. That sounds like a fun one. I'm aware that beforehand we've... Uh, maybe slightly messed up the order of these because we've just played whatever order games are on that day. But we will get the order correct from now on. And I'm very excited for us to be back and to to still be doing this. I'm aware we say this a lot, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you next week to see Canada and Tonga's first ever Rugby World Cup matches. We, of course, covered that game in uh, 2011. So I believe it's the first game where we've had a direct analogue. Yeah, that's um, fun. From 2011 to 20. to 1987 yeah so that's that's a that's a fun thing it is a fun thing it is we'll be doing that very soon in the future and i will learn to stop talking like i'm in house of gucci and (laughs) i'll see you after that okay goodbye all right see ya Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 